All right, Matt, you are, uh, we're ready to go, so why don't you uh, do this awesome dedication thing? So, Yeah, on. I gave it a bit of thought, and I uh, want to dedicate the episode to the scientists, meteorologists, bi- biologists, and engineers currently studying and working to solve climate change. Uh, as you may be aware, July was the hottest month in human history, and as an artist, I can only scream so loud uh, about the problem, so I have nothing yeah. but admiration. And NASA, too. <laughs> NASA, especially NASA. I have nothing but admiration and respect for anyone working towards understanding the problem or trying to engineer a solution. So to paraphrase Leslie Nielsen, I just want to tell you all, good luck. We're all counting on you. (laughs) I love it. Oh. All right, we're back here with Matt Eckholm, uh, director, writer. A lot of yeah, things. Yeah, you're mostly behind the camera. Right? Yes, you don't almost like, exclusively yeah. behind the camera. You're not going to be in front. No, uh, not no. not unless there's some really strange extenuating circumstances that make it really fun. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, not for me. Thanks. <laughs> uh, thanks for coming down. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, you have a project up ahead. Yep. Um, in previous works, and we'll put the attachments to anybody who's interested. You did a variety of short films, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of directed a lot of music videos. So we can talk a little bit about that. But let's talk about the one that you're working on right now, and you're going to possibly get an indie uh, Kickstarter or like an Indiegogo kind of motivation to get going on it. Sure, right? sure. Uh, uh, the project that we're kind of in development on right now is yeah. called A State of Affairs. And the synopsis is basically a young man wants to run off with the love of his life and his inheritance, but the first he has to prove to his uptight conservative parents that he's married to a woman. <laughs> so he hires an actress to portray his wife, actress in quotes, because okay. she's really a call girl, and... Uh, to portray his wife on a visit to his parents' estate in order to get his trust fund and to get out of Dodge. But as it's a farce and it's a 1930s-style comedy, things clearly do not go according to plan. Okay. And this movie has its own uh, social media, right? Yes. Uh, you can follow the film at, at Estate of Affairs underscore film, or uh, it's on Facebook, uh, Estate of Affairs movie. Okay. Uh, it really depends on what flavor of social media you like because they're just both linked and they're posting the same thing. So yeah, I find people have different variety of tastes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know. I don't really go on Facebook all that much anymore. I just basically do Instagram because Facebook just it really grates at the soul. <laughs> I have uh, yeah, I, I've done my usage just for promotions for the podcast and everything but yeah just if you just a mass amount of consuming a facebook i don't know what kind of it's tough yeah. it's, it's basically designed to stick what you want to consume in front of you and it, just keep it there i think yeah. one of the things that just is so illustrative is the fact that the people who designed the ui won't let their kids use it is because they use the same psychology that gets people hooked onto slot machines it's like yeah. that that blue, white, and red, that color scheme, that you really have this psychological need to make that red dot go away from your badge on your this, the screen of your phone. Yeah. And it's just, man, it's so much nicer just not to have to deal with that anymore. <laughs> so um, the premise, uh, estate affairs. Yes. Um, what are you guys thinking about when you're going to be start shooting or when you're going to be filming? That we're kind of leaving until we get the, the funding taken care of. It's okay. kind of... 
we we had an initial timeline that we wanted to stick to uh, because of the way things shook out with when we were building up our promotional material. We yeah. We're not really going to stick to that anymore. Uh, but we're trying to pull together a plan that's sustainable to be able to get the film done. Um, my main thing is it's a film that needs to be done a certain way, I think. And it needs to be done with a certain amount of like craft. Yeah. And if you... It, it's one of those things where I can't, you know, take on the whole load of, uh, you know. You have a certain look and taste for this film that you want. Yeah, yeah. And, and part of it, too, is I can't bootstrap the whole thing. It's like <laughs> when you're doing a short film and you're like, oh, well, you know, sound like something like uh, editing where it's like, oh, I'll write, direct and edit or I'll, you know, I'll, you know, maybe get some help, but I'll kind of build up the soundscape by my, like by myself when it's a project of this size doing that kind of becomes unsustainable and it's not you know you're either spending years and years and years trying to get a project done or you kind of implode from the stress of it all so my my thinking on it is we have to make sure that we have the the budget to do it correctly and to do it where once once we've shot it it's edited it's mixed and everything and we have our our orchestral score and everything all neatly wrapped up yeah and then it's over i think people because it's going to be a full feature right um yeah i would say i'd like to call it like a you know a four-reeler four okay so <laughs> it's, it's not, not like it, a short short, short it's not a short but it's it's yeah. more in line with like what a feature film would have been in the 1930s so kind of yeah, a like 80 s- minute, 70 minute yeah. 60 to 70 actually yeah, yeah. and that's part of the problem too and why we're doing crowdfunding is because a lot of elements of like how we're going to do the film don't really correspond very well with the ways that people raise money like legitimately for indie films like a lot of indie films will sell the the foreign rights in order to get the budget to shoot the film they're like hey we got x star it's a sci-fi movie about aliens and then they go to a distributor in china and say give me thirty thousand dollars or however much Right. We can't do that because, one, black and white films don't sell very well internationally. You'd think that that's weird, but in the markets where you get the money for this sort of thing, like, you know, China and India and places yeah. where you can get that kind of pre-release funding, they, they aren't interested in black and white films. Two, it's a comedy that's really, one, comedies are kind of bad because they don't translate very well, but it's also a comedy that's very much based on wordplay and, like, witty dialogue, and so that's just going to completely fall flat. And the third thing is just that it's we don't have any a like I would say that we have a really amazing cast, but it's not like a cast nationally of known nationally known names yeah. where you can say oh well you know you got DiCaprio in this we can fund that like this you know yeah. so yeah. a lot of the channels for traditional funding are kind of closed off to the film but we still believe in the story just enough be- that, just because of what it is yeah right? and you understand like a lot of times and a lot of times even with my book they always the first thing you tell you is what are you marketing for because there's a lot of people that are just not going to be interested absolutely and no matter what you do there's this is people that's not interested so you have to find out what you're really navigating it to and approach it to them yeah and part of that too is I'm, i've always kind of been adverse to doing crowdfunding because i kind of have been like i've seen a lot i've seen it go wrong a lot more than i've seen it go right so yeah it's not this it's hard play right and i think creative people initially are not really good salespeople. they're creative people so the selling of stuff even for me is kind of awkward as well yeah and that's what's weird is because i do come from a marketing background and (laughs) i do my day job is in marketing so i do have some of that but then i also you know when i when my hands are in too many things my i get up in my head too much because there's too many places where I'm making decisions based on like, well, we want to 
Like if I'm writing and directing, I'm rewriting while I'm directing and that's a problem. And that's something that's hard for me to get over. So this is a unique situation in it's based off of a 2018 Minnesota Fringe Fest play. Um, the very talented Savannah D'Amico directed and wrote the original stage play. Okay. And it was at one of the, uh, one of the performances of it that uh, I was introduced to her by the lead actress, Allie Daniels. Um, and that's how we got connected and we started working on the project. Okay. Is, so and you've worked with her before. I've worked with Allie, Allie yeah. yes. I haven't worked with Savannah before, but this is, uh, so far it's been great. Like, uh, Did, it's been very nice to be able to kind of focus really much, uh, really heavily on the look and the, the, the mechanics of the film yeah. while somebody else is there basically a complete encyclopedia of the characters and being able to kind of bounce like that uh, off each other has been really awesome. And I've really enjoyed working. We've only really done one on-set day to kind of shoot some promo material, but right now it's a it's a really cool energy and I'm yeah. really excited to share some stuff. It's kind of like the, the fun part of making a movie is like the right now, the planning and orchestrating it and kind of... Absolutely. It's, it gets, <laughs> it's almost like it gets almost addictive. You're like, yes, yes, I love it. You get all excited and all that stuff, yeah. And so it's, it's almost like the, the adrenaline rush to get it going. It Absolutely. Gets, gets going. I love and that, that. that does get you, that does start the wheels moving, but part of it is when that when um, the adrenaline dies down, making sure that things keep moving. And that's, yes. where, that's where the challenge comes in. And that's yeah. where right now we've had that initial glow of we got everybody, well, we had almost everybody on set. We shot as much of the promo material as we could. And then now it's, okay, let's bring everybody back together. Let's get the rest of it. And let's pull, put out a roadmap for the crowdfunding campaign because one thing that is a pet peeve of mine when I see campaigns is when somebody puts up a launch video and then calls it a day and expects to log back into Indiegogo or Kickstarter in 30 days and see, uh, you know, the bank accounts full. That's not how it works. You've got to keep engaging. Um, we yeah. were trying to, we're trying to build out a system of um, a bunch of videos that are going to happen at X, Y, Z point in the campaign. Uh, we shot a ton of promo material for photos and yeah. it's wonderful. Yeah. It's, it's, it really is something that you need to be doing basically full time in order to be successful. Right. Especially with the show, it's not my top priority, but you cannot just abandon it. Oh yeah. You have to kind of engage people on any kind of social media to at least keep it going, at least to get drive interest because it supports not only me, but the guests are coming on who keep, you know, because you know, eventually, uh, you know, even though somebody not listen now, but a couple of months from now, will listen and then participate. So it does engage in my podcast helps me and the guests as well. It lives on forever is what, you know. yeah, kind of. Yeah, that's a long answer. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So do you like the like the marketing of the films? Do you like doing that as well? You know, it's it's interesting. Um Going like one of my first like full time jobs that I ever had was working for a distribution company. And it was okay. really interesting to kind of see the sausage getting made. Um, it was a little depressing because you kind of realize that um, that that film school dream that you're going to make your big movie and then someone's going to buy it for a million dollars and give you a career. Yeah. It's that that was when the dream died for me <laughs> <laughs> when he went to the. Yeah. yeah. Because you realize, the, the, oh, wow, they really are this. I mean, this specific company um it is one of the. It is still one of the top ten like DVD distributors in the country, and uh, that is by attrition, because the DVD industry shrinks by ten percent a year. Yeah, and so they they basically have lasted out a lot of their competitors, and they do that by you know, like being you know 
a company that sells DVDs. Like um, you probably have seen a 50 pack of public domain movies right? Um, yeah. at like a Walmart. They invented that. And so that's that's how they've stayed around is like by repackaging public domain and like keeping stuff like that around. And so you kind of realize that like what those stores are looking for, where they they want a product to put on the shelf. It's not, you know, the indie comedy that like you want to make is just out of somebody who just graduated from college. It's then they want something that has a recognizable name that's existed for a long time. And that's part of the reason why I started shifting more into, well, film is my you know, my craft and my art, uh, as opposed to I'm going to go be a famous director. And I think that that's really helped put things in perspective for me where I can do things like motorway macabre, where I'm doing stop motion and live action and doing like, um, the bridge where it was again, live action and putting people into models and just kind of playing with like the sorts of images that I want to create without so much of a worry of, well, this is the stepping stone that's going to get me here, which is going to get me here, which is going to get me here. You know what? I'm not going to say that I wouldn't take an offer if it came around, but I'm not banking my entire emotional security on it anymore. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, um, and I would like to talk, a little talk about the marketing because when I worked video stores, um, and you know, all video, you know, especially movies, it's the image, right? Mm-hmm. What's on the cover. And a lot of times I've seen a variety of good movies get ignored just because the cover didn't really gravitate to them or what was on the cover yep. or like over the poster. Well, and the inverse yeah. is true too. I mean, I'm sure that if you've seen any of those documentaries about the VHS like rental era where there were those those direct-to-video companies that they would make the posters and they'd like make 10 posters and they'd go to a distributor and they'd go, well, I like these four. And then they'd say, okay, these four posters sold, write me a movie. <laughs> so good birthday on the other one. Yeah. They they made the poster yeah. first and I find that just so fascinating. <laughs> so like this is the this is the yeah. image that captivated the executive. Now we have to match it with a movie. And that's like uh, that's why just so many of the the really old covers like just really stick with you because they were designed to really catch the attention. Yeah, it's almost well it, posters are kind of a lost art nowadays. I mean oh, a yeah. lot of people is just you got it on your phone or somebody tells you or you watch the trailer. But back in the 90s, the poster made everything. You went to the movie, you didn't really, sometimes you didn't even see the trailer. The poster made everything interesting to focus on, the one slice of how to get everything. Now, yeah, everything's just streamed out so you could just see it and then you go. Sometimes sometimes you get too much. I do think that there's a little bit of it still that exists because I will scroll through on like Prime or Hulu or something and uh, the bad posters do not grab me and i know that netflix does a lot of the a b testing where they've got all these different posters that are algorithmically designed to reach to different people but the other day i i found like this 80s movie that was on like prime called the wraith and it was like with charlie sheen and like uh, oh yeah i remember uh, uh, clint howard's in it of course because it's the 80s um but uh the randy quaid okay yeah Yeah. randy quaid that's (laughs) right um but uh the poster called out to me and they used the original poster. Nice. And so it's yeah. like those things, like if people still want to dr- attract attention, it, it, a thumbnail is no different than a poster. It's just, we're just used to looking at it in a different, you know, venue now. Yeah. So I do wish that people would kind of recognize that there's still power in that. And any YouTuber will tell you that because any YouTuber knows that if they don't put the right thumbnail together that captivates people to click on it, then that could be the difference between them being able to, you know, get the ad revenue they need to pay rent that week or not, you yeah. know? So 
it some people still get it i don't think the people who are making big movies right now get it because they just see it as like oh well you know that it doesn't matter the they just want to see you know what's kind of in it you know (laughs) (laughs) But I think that one of the, uh, what enticed me was, there was a great, there's a great poster for a movie out now, uh, Midsummer's poster. Mm. Fits the movie perfectly. It looks, it fits the whole theme of the movie perfectly. Well, that's A24, isn't it? I think it, Midsummer, A24. Like the studio? Uh, Yep. Yeah. Okay. Thinking, yes. Then yes. Makes, yeah. Then that makes sense to me because yeah. A24 is operating on a completely different level right now. <laughs> and they have been for a couple of years. Like anytime like I see that that like their logo appears before a trailer, I'm like, okay, this is going to be a good movie. <laughs> and that, I do sometimes do that. Sometimes if it's a production company that I know, I just like, yeah, that they produce good movies. I want to go see them. Yeah. It, you know, for a little while in the 80s, it was Orion. Like I, there's a couple oh, yeah. movies that I was like, like some of my favorite movies, they're all Orion movies. <laughs> and then, you know, financial mismanagement, you know, you know, the old story. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, so if you do you apply marketing when you direct music videos too? that's a little different because I think when you're doing music videos, um, you're kind of both trying to a music video in itself is a marketing piece for a band kind of um, is right yeah and and that's i mean ever since mtv that's really they they sold people on making music videos as this is a commercial for a band and but there's kind of a you know tug of war between you know the band artists like they they have an artistic vision and yeah. then you have one and so it kind of is something where i like to approach situations where um, I've done a lot of my music videos for very low rate or no rate. And that's because I approach them with, look, you want a music video. I want to make a, basically a short film with your music. Yeah. Let's approach this as a collaboration, not a commission. Nice. Okay. Because if I'm being commissioned, I'm going to do what they say. And if I'm, if I'm doing this for low, low rate, I don't really want to do what somebody says because I'm doing this because I really believe in their music or I'm doing it because, um, I feel like what I have to offer will fit with what they've got going on. Yeah. And so sometimes it's a little bit difficult where you're trying to explain that where we're working together, but sometimes people want to tell you what to do. Yeah. And that, those are those situations I like to avoid when it comes to, because it's like, I'm trying to do right by you, but I also don't want to be put in a position where I'm doing, you know, I, I feel like I'm working. Yeah. I, I, I mean, yeah. I know that this is a business and people are doing jobs, but it's like if I'm if I feel like I'm doing work, I want to be getting paid. <laughs> right. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, I totally get it. Yeah. Um, especially if I'm making my own comic book, there's certain things as I'm doing it myself. So I don't like to be told how to do things exactly. as well. But in a, in a way, I want this a little more freeing. I get to, I don't have the limitations of a big marketing camp, you know, distribution that tells me you have to do this. You have to get this in there. I'm doing the pages. It's a little, it's more free. It's a little more out there. Mm-hmm. And certainly that's another reason why I'm doing it myself because you don't have, you're not limited to the restrictions of what the, that company says it has to have right absolutely yeah so it's a little more play a little more fun and i think that's what you want and especially when you do those kind of videos especially i think the artists too a little bit like a little bit more freer yeah well and that's kind of like the the it wasn't the most recent one i did but it was the most recent one that i did locally okay Uh, i was um a band the hope arthur orchestra who's the spiders sing the blues and it was a situation where she had come up from fort wayne to do a sort of artist show 
um, that a friend of mine was doing a performance piece at. And she was just this solo artist with like an accordion. And I thought that she was just like, fan- like the lyrics were fantastic. It just yeah. like fit my sort of like the kind of music that I listened to. And then I was like, okay, um, I want to do a video with you. She gave me a demo. And then when I'm listening on the way home, I'm just like, this is a full orchestra. <laughs> and like, and, and at first I'm just like, this has to be like Korg horns or something. Like it has to be a synthesizer. But then like, I look it up and it's like, no, she literally assembled like 25 musicians to record an orchestra. And this is like her brainchild. And it was just like, there's this like minute and a half song on there. And I was just like, it goes from being like just solo piano to full orchestra and back and forth. And it's like, that's the one that's the one we're doing. And yeah. so we worked together to, she moved from Fort Wayne to Chicago. And then, so we had her come up for a day. Um, my friend Elise, um, she is a performance and sculpture artist. So one thing we did that summer is she drew out a bunch of like the sculptures that she wanted to do into a notebook. And I'm like, let's put that in the video. Let's put that in the video. Let's put that. And so she became my art director. <laughs> and so <laughs> like, she was like, I get it. And it yeah. was great because hope got a music video that had a lot of really high concept performance pieces in it elise got a platform for her art and not just her art but also that like we kind of like gave her a means to actually accomplish it because sometimes performance pieces it doesn't there's not a really good you know venue for that or if it's a sculpture it's like well you need a place to stage this this way we could stage a sculpture forever in video right and then, yeah and, and then yeah. it's non-destructive and then i i gotta make a really cool piece with a song that i really liked with one of my best artist friends so everybody won and That's i think nice. yeah it was a i'm still like really in awe that we got to pull all those different elements together into something so cool and and elise was friends with a spider wrangler like when i was like hey what what are the odds of us getting an actual spider in this video she's like oh i know several spider breeders Really? And what? my my first thought, my first question was, "You do?" And my second question is, "Several?" <laughs> yeah, we're like, so. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we we I I actually wasn't on set when we did the spider. Oh, good. It okay. was in All her. Right. It was in her studio. We we that was been, that was my piano. next question. <laughs> but yeah, we had a bun- we used sugar glass in a different segment of the video, so we put some of it on the piano. The Wranglers were there. They watched it walk slowly over everything, and like it was. And then we just did fast photography to make it look like it was like really like darting around and like that. It was a little like, speed up a little. Yeah. Bit, yeah. So it was. Yeah. I was at work that day, so I couldn't be there. <laughs> the funny thing, the, apparently the hours for spider wrangling are, you know, uh, only during the day. And then they they were working at night. So really? it was like we were okay. on opposite schedules. So I don't know. I've actually had a tarantula in my hand when I went to the Minnesota Zoo. Oh, yeah, yeah, they do that. And as a kid, yeah, yeah. It's like, they're not, it's not going to bite you, but they're like super, it's weird. It's like, they're really super hairy. Yep. And then they don't like to move very much. They're kind of lazy. Yeah, they are. Yeah. And, and it's like, I'm not afraid of spiders. I actually like spiders more than I like a lot of other insects. Like for me personally, I understand eight legs because I'm like, I have four limbs. Eight is just double the four. I don't get how six works and I don't get how more than eight works. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, all right, I, I can get like, maybe if I had like four arms and four legs, I could kind of understand how that works. But the, beyond that, no. We I have a... Uh, one of my teenagers, I know, I know she, she's a, I know, I know her, um, but she loves Spider-Man. Oh, yeah. Terrified of spiders. 
<laughs> but she loves Spider-Man. She'll wear the shoots. And, but if you bring a little spider up to her, she'll just panic. <laughs> I go, how does that work? She goes, I like Spider-Man, but like, what? What? <laughs> what doesn't work? Well, Peter Parker's a little more approachable, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Though I do remember there was an episode of the the '90s cartoon where he did grow an extra two two. Oh arms yeah, the mutant legs. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I was like, he did become a spider at some point. So, do you still watch animation? You know, I try to. Um, I don't really have television. I mean, I have uh, streaming, obviously. Sure. So yeah. If there's old stuff that shows up on Netflix or Amazon, but I don't get cable. I don't really have anything live. So all the new stuff that comes out, I basically have to wait till it distills down to where I can see it. Yeah. So okay, it's a little disappointing. So you're you're not, you're not able to watch a lot of animation. Unfortunately, no. Okay. Um, I, I yeah. wish I could more. Um. I'm trying to think of what the last couple things I've watched were. I mean, I've I've seen a bit of the the Cartoon Network kind of revival with like uh, Adventure Time. Oh yeah, and but I mean that that's just kind of ended yeah. now. So like, there's I think the last time I was in a hotel, I saw a marathon of Loud House, which I don't what's, know what's I don't know that? what that is. I don't know who makes that, but it's like this cartoon about like this this kid who has like eleven sisters, and he just has to like kind of deal with like the contrasting personalities in this very loud house and the art style i just thought was like really charming and it was really fast paced and it kind of had that stretch and squash that you yeah. know the old looney tunes kind of had and um so yeah i mean I, I guess i like loud house um gravity falls i wish that gravity falls had gotten more than two seasons but i i really respect somebody who goes into a goes into what could clearly be an endless contract of keep making us these cartoons until you're bored of it and saying, no, I just want to tell this story and be done. So it's kind of neat that somebody got the option to do that, but uh, I wanted more selfishly for myself. Do you watch documentaries? Uh, To a degree. Um, I try and watch um, good stuff when it comes out. Like I think the last one I saw that I really remember was they'll, they'll love me when I'm dead, which was the documentary that Netflix released alongside, um, uh, what was that the uh, lost Orson Welles movie that right it was on Netflix too yeah I, I didn't yeah. watch the movie because from what the documentary gave me the impression that the movie was going to be terrible it is it's <laughs> yeah. a little bit I, I understand what he wanted to do and it's being done now this a movie in a movie yeah I'm making a movie but it's inside a movie almost like you know uh, you've seen it before inside of making a movie as a movie something like yeah, yeah like living in oblivion yeah. like did it better but <laughs> yeah. but no the documentary was just fascinating of this guy trying over like decades to get this finished and like every time he thinks he's like close then there's a rights issue and then somebody wrenches it back and just it was it, it was gut-wrenching and then like the whole idea that he's like doing like all this like acting jobs basically to try and keep funneling Find movie it, into yeah. it instead of going on and just doing something else at a certain point like he believed in that project so much that he was willing to just keep putting like throwing so much good after bad on it and it's it, honestly it's too bad that the end result isn't that great because you you kind of wish that there was a happy ending after all of it where you know after all these years yeah, after all fine, these issues yeah. it finally came out and it was the best movie ever made but you know I don't think that that would really fit with the the whole story of Orson Welles' life in retrospect. I mean, I sadly, yeah. I I don't personally, I don't think he peaked with you know Citizen Kane. I love the trial, but um, I know that like it that's a really hard act to follow. Is if you 
like directors who've gotten yeah. that one There's really always, good movie that like they're yeah. the wonderkind after they after they make it and they are constantly chasing that for the rest of their career. Yeah, it's almost like you know I, I just made a good movie, but you guys, how am I supposed to top that? Yeah, and then you're not really you can't really top that. You're just continuing to work. Yeah, I can understand that a little bit. Um, do you do, when you're not making movies? Do you th- still think about it? making movies and even during your break or it's really hard not to i mean i (laughs) i i'm constantly trying to do like other stuff like um like because i mean we're finishing up motorway right now um we've been basically in kind of a little bit of a holding pattern as uh my my partner and effects guy uh Christian Calabrese he's been the producer and the cinematographer on the whole thing he's been working out of state so we're trying to finish up a lot of the special effects right now and so that we can move on to composing and sound design and you know be able to finally show the thing but um, when he's when he's working on uh, freelance stuff it's kind of grinds to a halt a bit so we've been we've been waiting on that but in the meantime I keep going like man I, I can't wait till we can do this I can't wait till we can do that and like he's got ideas too where he's like we've got like we've got a potential like slate of like six or seven different things that we could be doing which is crushing but it's also like the weight of it's kind of crushing but at the same time it's also you know i like you're not running out of ideas well i like to think of it the way del toro does where he says that like i'm constantly developing things and not everything's going to get made you know right i like that yeah and it's like not everything that I want to do, I'm actually going to get to do, but at least like if I'm moving everything like a little bit forward when the, when the stars align on something where like, for example, I've got a project that, um, is, I'm going to play the cards pretty close to the chest in this one, but I ran into some people recently who have wanted to do similar projects. And so it's like, cool, you're interested in this. You're interested in this. Now we're all together. If I had tried making this before we were all connected, it might we might have just been duplicating efforts. But if we are all working on this together, yeah, yeah. that it kind of like lines up and says, hey, we can make this now. And all of us can do something that we've wanted to do. Um, so I, I don't see it as kind of like something where, oh, it's trying to do too much and you're not going to get to do it. It's like the the right things are going to come out, I think. Nice. Yeah. Do you do, do, you do any illustrations or like storyboards? For I have been trying for years to get better at drawing and it just does not seem to ever stick. Um, so I, yeah. Motorway is the most storyboarding I ever had to do because we were okay. trying to match up stop motion with live action. Did you so, do it with, did you do it with the bridge too? The, the bridge, we did a little bit. Okay. Um, I didn't like that one was a little bit more like we kind of knew what angles we were going to be limited to going in. Cause so we were, you didn't really have to. Yeah. No, it was like, we knew that everything was going to be staged on that bridge. So it was kind of like we, we had a plane to work with. And yeah. so everything was like, okay, we're putting people in on the Y axis of this scene. So we don't really need to like figure out where they are in relation to, you know, the camera because it's going to always be the same. Um, and plus we were all, we were kind of looking to kind of a toy look with it. I kind yeah. of, like it was the first time I had tried doing stuff with models. So I kind of, you know, I nerfed it a little bit in like, oh, well, they're supposed to be models. <laughs> yeah, it does. You look like almost like, is it reality? Or is it, yeah, it's a mixture of kind of play of a little bit of reality and geometry too at the same time. Yeah. But yeah, a little bit fun. Um, all right, we're going to take a little break here and then more back with Matt. 
everyone, Chris here from A Dash of Science. You ever wonder how we evolved from apes, even though there's still apes around? Can't figure out why we don't have a cure for cancer or why we aren't gene splicing the hell out of everything? Maybe you find yourself wondering why we aren't going to Mars yet or how come we're not headed full throttle towards all those habitable planets that NASA's found. If any of these feel familiar to you or you just enjoy hearing about science, technology, engineering, and medicine, then come check us out. At A Dash of Science, we take these topics and put them in a chokehold until they submit, until you get all the answers you never knew you wanted. So make sure you check us out at your favorite podcasting app or visit us directly at dashofscience.com. with Matt. So if you um, you talked in a little bit about movies, do you do music? No, no. You no, you don't do an no, instrument? No, I, I I played trumpet in like middle school and I played <laughs> guitar like up until yeah. like I went to college, but that was the that was the point when I didn't bring it with me to college. I didn't keep practicing. Oh, you didn't do the classic I, I wasn't guitar that, guy in no, college. No, yeah. no. And, and that was peak Wonderwall time too, so I really missed out on that. But I just, yeah, I, I, I fell out of it. It's something that, like, I don't think I ever really had the brain to be able to, like, do it. Like, because, like, one, I never was somebody who could stand up and play with guitar, which always kind of sucked because you weren't able to, like, you know, perform. And okay. two, like, I couldn't do, I can't, I can't write music. I can't, like, think on that level. So I really, like, I love working with musicians who can, and they really have, like, an artistic voice and an ability to to put words together in a way that I just, I just can't. And that's one thing that, like, one thing I'm really excited with Motorway Macabre is that we are working with local band, the Poor Nobodies, to, for the, uh, the score. Oh, okay. And we're, we're working that out right now. And they are just, like, the, they're just the coolest group. They are, Good. it's like this kind of, you know, I, I don't even know how to describe it. So are you going to, f- working with that movie, are you going to film it and then put the music in or is it kind of music first or? Uh, they're going to compose to the two picture. They, okay. they actually will do live screenings of films where it's like, um, I saw them at a cemetery in Minneapolis. Uh, the film was the, the silent version of the hands of Orlock. And in this cemetery, they performed a full score for the movie. And they just did one at the Trilon for um, this Russian like sci-fi movie. Okay, I, I, the name is escaping me right now, but that's that's kind of what they do. And so we were talking too about like, well, when we when we release it, maybe we'll do a live score. And that's kind of that's something beyond my wildest dreams, like to be able to like, okay, my my film is playing and there's a score to it. That's that'd be like super this cool. cool band. Yeah, yeah. So it's like there's a there's a lot of really neat elements that are coming together on it that I'm really excited like. I got it. I cannot underline enough how excited I am to share that movie. Um, I've wanted to, it to be out for a few months now, but we've just been—it's been taking time to get it right. So, can you can you watch your own movie with other people? It depends. I've gotten better at it. Sure. Um, I think 
Uh, part of it was when I started delving more into fantasy and doing more just like uh, weirder stuff and like more stop motion and yeah. more fantastic elements. I think when I was younger, I took myself too seriously. And so then like there was this disconnect between what I was seeing and what in my head I thought it was. And so that that took a bit of growing up to get over. And now I just feel that much more confident in what I'm doing that it's like, yeah, I'm proud to stand beside or, you know, watch a movie with an audience. And I think I think the turning point was the bridge because okay. you can't sit in an audience with um, filmmakers like Gus Van Sant and Rob Minkoff and Danny Elfman, Elfman in particular sitting directly behind you and feel at on feel like yeah. weird about your movie being played because at on some level it got into this room. It has to have something to it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we can go back from the start and I should have actually done it, but I want to get the other project. What actually got you started into doing films? You know, it's it's um, the most childish thing. Um, but when I was a kid, there was nothing cooler than when the Lego catalog came. And usually the coolest thing in that was being released that quarter was on the back page. And that year, um, I can't remember what year it was. I think it was like 2000 or something. But um, the back page... Uh, the back page of the catalog had the Steven Spielberg movie maker set. Yes, it did. Yes, it did. And it was, uh, oh man, it was like a really rudimentary editing software. It was like a webcam that like at the time it was like one of the better webcams available given the research I've done on it lately. It was like, there wasn't too much else around at that point that was actually decent, but the whole point was, yeah, you can make little like Lego stop motions with this. And that was, once I got that, I never wanted to stop. Well, that's what initially when YouTube started, I think, you know, like, well, I can't remember Roll 506, but one of the first things you saw was Lego filmed. Lego stop motion stop motion. everywhere. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, if you know where to look for them, they're still everywhere and they're better than ever. And that so is, nobody's really has stopped doing them. They're no. just be, it's kind of evolving. Well, it's like you, you got to think like, some of the first ones that were made were made back in the 80s and people were doing it on Super 8. Like <laughs> these toys have been part of like young filmmakers like repertoire of, you know, things to make movies of forever. And it really was just that was when digital filmmaking came about. That's when people really started to like get good with it. Yeah. And like now where the, the same software that's being used by Leica and by um, other stop motion studios, it's, it's only like $300. And I mean, there's a lot of things in it that you can that you can make use of if you have more expensive equipment around it. But the core software is really accessible for most people. And now, like when we shot Motorway, we shot some of it with a Sony camera. But in order to get really close up with stuff without having a macro lens and trying to like maintain a really deep depth of field, we used an iPhone. And there's a um, Dragon Frame has an app on iPhone that lets you connect to it and like um i think the thing that sold me was one of the projects that they were using to demonstrate how well this worked was this hot wheels like they did this like um web series and they did it stop motion and they shot it on an iphone yeah. and i was like okay i'm doing race cars <laughs> hot wheels did this if hot wheels thinks this is good good, good yeah. enough i think yeah. i can be okay with it and so yeah it was basically anything where the cars are really close up where it, they 
the the um the, that's the term it's not depth of field but like the i can't remember the actual cinema billy can grill me and make fun of me for it later but there's an actual term for between the point where things are in focus and where the actual lenses that 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 distance like if the car is closer to the camera than that distance would be normally and you can see it in focus we used an iphone so. I see. In that in that specific movie. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So for you, it was pretty early. You were doing it with Legos. Yeah. Yeah. It was probably like 10. And I mean, they weren't any good. And they were, you know, basically, they were all on a computer that doesn't work anymore. So I have no access to them anymore. But it was kind of like that led to getting real cameras, led to going to film school, led to trying to make real movies, and then, you know, being here. So... Uh, one thing that I've kind of realized in retrospect is that um, when you first get started, you're going to make bad things. So make a lot of things when you first get started. <laughs> yes, it's like no I ma- like that. But yeah, no matter what you make when you first start out, it's going to be terrible. I, I we've had previous guests. Uh, he's an independent filmmaker called McDonald. He says it's 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 like your first pancake. It's going to be a wreck. Just get it over with. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> just do it and then move on. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and and yeah. and. That's where, like, the one cringy thing for me is, like, thinking about the time when I was, like, in high school going, I can't shoot on this camera. HD cameras just came out. I want to shoot my movie on an HD camera. And then when I went to college, it was like, oh, well, this HD camera isn't a DSLR. Everyone's shooting movies on DSLRs. And I was like, oh, that's, it's such a trap to fall into because everything's, every, like, it's always going to be better. Like, there's always going to be something better coming down. And, like... There was a great article on No Film School recently that was like cinema cameras you can buy for two hundred dollars, and it's like this is the camera they used to shoot like safety not guaranteed. Nobody wants it anymore, so you can get it on eBay for two hundred dollars. It's like that's just revolutionary. Like to think that you could get like a camera of that caliber and just go nuts with it. But you know the the people who need to hear that are currently in the age where they know everything. And so they're currently saying, well, you know, it's not an Airy Alexa. So, you know, I'm going to just keep waiting until I can shoot my my stoner comedy on an Airy Alexa. <laughs> uh, when you write your movies, do you do NX cards? I've tried. I've, I do that sometimes, okay. but I like to just, I like to outline. Um, oh, you do like, okay. I, I like yeah. outlines. That was going to be my next question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I generally will like just write out an outline of like every all the beats that I think the story needs to hit, um, and usually at that stage is when I will uh, start like fleshing out certain scenes. Uh, yeah. Usually the ones that like I see the clearest. Um, from there, then I try and fill in the gaps. And if something really isn't working, it's like okay, well, is the problem that I can't figure out how to write the words to make the scene work, or is it that the scene just it isn't working? does this need to be something else in order to actually connect the dots better? And I feel like that serves some of the same purpose as index cards. I know that I want to, on one of the upcoming ideas that I have, I want to do index cards because I'm working on it, like I'm workshopping with a friend. And it's like, I think that index cards would be a great way because we have like a universe of ideas and we don't exactly know what we want to narrow it down to. So maybe instead of it being like index cards for all the beats, like the way I would in outline, it would be, Let's put all our ideas down and see if we can connect a thread through these. And if not, let's interchange some stuff and see, like, 
like almost like a pre preamble to even writing a like an outline is just kind of narrowing down the thoughts since you're heavily involved with marketing when you write do you think about that at this at the same time oh, i try not to i okay. really try not to <laughs> like i mean because that's that's how you get stuff where like you know you that you know the jokes where people are trying to like you know hit all four quadrants and like you know <laughs> yeah. like i don't like i said like back when I wanted to sell my work and I wanted to become a famous director, that that would have been the way that I would have approached it. And that was pre getting into marketing. But I think that ultimately people respond better to works that come from an organic place and not from, okay, well, what's selling right now? And I mean, I don't think that that's really a controversial opinion, (laughs) but um, I do know that like I got a lot happier with the end result when I wasn't trying to like please anybody but myself. Right. In the essence of writing, especially you have to, you have to enjoy it. If you don't enjoy it, how is anybody else supposed to right. appreciate it? Um, especially I think usually with writing, people get too much caught up in the process of just organically get a good story out primarily. And I mean, that's where I've had a lot of fun writing with somebody else where like if somebody like, I mean, Long Goodbye is a great example. Um, Amber Steimer and I basically came up with the idea together while we were, we were at Bryant Lake Bowl, one of their um, cinema lounge nights. And the people who we were with kept talking to other people and they just kept getting into more (laughs) conversations and more conversations. And we were just like looking at our watches, just like we would have left by now because we Irish goodbye. That's how we leave places. But not um, here in Minnesota. You, yeah. No, no, no. You have to say goodbye to everybody. And so she was like, I want to make a movie about this. And I'm like, I do too. And so we sat on that for a couple of years. But then she wrote a couple drafts of Long Goodbye. And then I came in with the third draft just to kind of like, okay, well, I I, I like that this is the direction that... Because I... Like, there was one thing that Christian said when he when he read the script. And he's like, there are lines in this where I'm like, yeah, that, Matt Eckholm wrote this. <laughs> <laughs> it's like there are certain ways that people talk and I was yeah, like okay yeah. great like and that that feels good to me because I feel like I, I take pride in the way that you I, have to I have a little bit of a so. signature when you do stuff a little yeah. bit of something that is unique to you yeah. but I think the the idea too was it was great because I could just come in and like make the characters like come alive with dialogue but Amber did a lot of the heavy lifting of where they are where they're going and why and so that was a kind of neat kind of thing where I could do what I consider my strengths and she could, you know, get this story onto page and together we put together a cool film. So if anybody doesn't really, if you want to explain to everybody, (laughs) I don't, I think it's very concentrated, especially Minnesota. You want to explain the long goodbye? How You know, it's you guys, if the Minnesota goodbye is just, and and, and I know it's, we say Minnesotan because we're from Minnesota, but it's really just the Midwestern sort of thing where, you know, you, you want to leave, but then somebody, you know, decides, oh, well, we want to start up a conversation by the door and now we're going to start up a conversation by the car. And now you're sitting in the car with the engine on and we're leaning in the window to talk to you. And it's like, it just never, and it never, ever ends. So we wanted to turn it that, like, I mean, there was a, a great, like how to talk like a Minnesotan. Yeah, there's a book. Yeah, from uh, like there was the book, and then they made the the special on PBS or something, yep. and it was like, yeah, uh, like really earnest. Like you know, they're documenting Amer like uh, Minnesotan culture, and we were like, what if it was a horror movie? <laughs> so we kind of took it like, like with a Hitchcock bent, and 
It does. Wait. I think for outsiders, it does feel like are you are you kidnapping me? Yeah, Can, I can't leave. You're just you're being boxed in. <laughs> yes. and and yeah, I, yeah. I do find it really interesting because how, especially me being Minnesota and, and you know you do a family functions, you have to start with well tomorrow, and that's an, you knowing that you're going to leave in about an hour. You have to plan an hour ahead, especially you know especially intimate family. Well, you know. I'm going to have to probably go pretty soon. <laughs> and you know, it's going to be an hour from now. Yep. And they're going to dump all this stuff like food on you. Do you want to take this? How's your car? And you know, it's, it's I got interrogation process. I got to say the hands-free cell phone bill has been the greatest thing. Really? Because you can say on a phone call where you're trying to wrap it up, I'm getting in my car now. I don't want to get arrested. Bye. And hang up. <laughs> I never thought about that. I never thought about that. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. So, so yeah, like, um, and so I, I, I don't, I mean, to interrupt you, but okay, that's the latest project, the long goodbye. Um, how could people, is, can people find it? Uh, it's on Vimeo right now. On um, your Vimeo? I, yeah, it's on, on my Vimeo page. Uh, we really didn't push it too much. We kind of, it was doing a festival tour, played at TCFF, it played yeah. at some other regional festivals. Um, but now it's, now it's available. We just haven't, you know, said, hey, everybody, here it is. And there's a couple of previous guests that were worked on it. Well, we've had John on our podcast. Yes, uh, I love we've, John. We've had Billy on our podcast, and we've had Ellie on our on our show, too. So oh, a yeah. A lot of familiar people have worked on that, yes. Well, that was the thing, is, like, I discovered the St. Paul Filmcast because of Billy's episode. So, oh, great. Like, when he was like, I was, on, I was just on this podcast, listened to it, and I was like, oh, well. And so... Like, I think I was really, I, I still am, but I was really at the time into playing American Truck Simulator. And like, one of the great things about that game is it's basically listen to podcasts, the game, where it's like, I'm just driving down a freeway yeah. with nothing to do but avoid hitting cars. <laughs> and I gotta, I gotta hit this deadline, yeah. you know, but so all I can really do is like, I can throw on a podcast and like, listen while I'm playing. And so I I just started going through the back catalog at that point. It's like, yep, this is great. So, yeah, um, Billy is, I met him in college. Like, it was my freshman year. I think it was his uh, sophomore year. I can't, or junior year, one of the two. But, um, but yeah, we've been working together some, like, almost every one of my projects ever since. Like, it's only been recently when I've been working with Christian as a DP um, for things that we've been doing with special effects. Um, but I really like that, you know, Billy and I, we, we communicate on a, an, um, on, on a level now where I can kind of say, this is sort of what I'm thinking. And he's like, cool, got it. And he just goes and like, does it. And that's, that's a really mm. neat point to get to because I'm like, oh, cool shorthand. I can dedicate information in my brain to something else now, instead of having to explain this thing, which is cool because for inspiring directors, is it if kind of that relationship a little bit important with your DP? Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I would say that um, if you have a specific vision of how you want your films to go, uh, finding a DP who has a similar sensibility and a similar vision uh, is indispensable. Just because if you're able to kind of share that sort of mind's eye on the project, without even having to like really go at length on it, then you're just that much closer to getting your vision on the screen. And so that's that's one of the things that I've really liked like working with Billy and working with Christian is they see what I'm seeing. And that's been super helpful in getting the the exact thing that I want out of my head. <laughs> nice. When you, 
um, for in front of the camera? Do you do auditions? Um, you know, largely I haven't. Um, Estate of Affairs, we did auditions, okay. um, but I think that was so um, like um, we really wanted to make sure that we were capturing the characters as Savannah wrote them. So it was me and Amber and Savannah in like interviewing and auditioning. Um, but largely, I kind of. Um, I, I just watch a lot of local stuff. So I kind of okay. keep a, like a little bit of a mental Rolodex in my head of like, Oh, I really want to put that. I want to put her in something. I want to put him in something. And that was like, I mean the bridge like, I was friends with Allie for like a year on Facebook before we actually like started talking about projects. And it was like, um, when I started cr- coming up with a character that was like, a sort of a spitfire engineer who didn't want to take crap from the, uh, from the her superiors i was like oh Allie would be perfect for that <laughs> and and it's the same thing too with like um with a, a long goodbye where like i'd been like man being at diaz is a really great actor who needs to be in more stuff i want to work with being at diaz and so when we were putting together the uh the um we were putting together the plan for the the shoot she was like number one choice it's like can we get her can we get her and she just yeah. like knocked it out of the park um just I like I said, my dialogue is a little bit wordy, and it's like, like kind of tongue in cheek. And she just nailed the tone just so well. And like I, I've got other stuff in the works that I really want to work with her again on. And I think she was in the chairman, which was talked about on here. She was the oh yeah, the lead in the uh, chairman, Frank White, yeah, previous guest, yeah. 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 And and I think that anybody who's listening, who's looking to cast somebody who really just like nails it when it comes to to film work like seriously give bianette diaz a a call <laughs> i love that <laughs> so uh, if you can just trace in your mind a little bit what are some of the movies that kind of inspire you to be a filmmaker oh, man is it is it just too cheesy to say robocop like i think that the original one the original oh of course the original one. i just want to clarify <laughs> right <laughs> but yeah. the, the um just the it's just such a clever script where it's like on one hand it's a dumb action movie but it's on, on right it was sold as dumb action and movie. i mean that's why most people watched it is like wow like the the body count in that movie is really high um but also it's just such a biting social commentary it's a heavy political movie oh yeah and it it still holds up like to this day yeah. like I just, I cannot watch that movie enough. Like, there's just so much to it. Like, it's the blending of the stop motion and the live action. It's just a cool character who is really struggling with identity and with who who they are and, like, what what it means to be human. And just all these really cool themes that are just wrapped up in a movie where, you know, people's people are, like, turning into sludge monsters and blowing up. It's like... Yeah. <sighs> I think it was a great magic trick. We're going to sell you this high-octane action movie... But if you really investigate it, there are some deep themes that they're talking about here. Yeah. It's almost a Greek tragedy. It, it's, you know, it's um, biblical. It's yeah. like, it's re- it's a resurrection story, except Jesus gets to, you know, avenge himself. That's a gun himself. in his, a gun in his <laughs> Like, there's a scene where, yeah. like, he's walking in the, um, in the, at the iron, or the uh, smelting plant at the end, and the reflections underneath him, like, make him look like he's walking on water. It's like, that's not an accident. That's Paul Verhoeven saying, yes, this yeah. is robo-Jesus, <laughs> you know? And then what I find super cool about, like, because I also really like to watch terrible movies, is um, when I think of RoboCop, I can't also not think of "I Am Here Now" by um, by Neil, Neil Breen. 
Neil Breen? Yeah, because it's yeah. like it's it's the same concept, but done with like zero like awareness. <laughs> That's exactly all I like about Neil. Is he, like, he has no concept of how it gets received he has a what he thinks it is yeah and that's the thing is yeah. like i i really hope he can keep that because i think what he's got right now where like i mean everybody always says when they talk about bad movies they say the room but like tommy was always so in on the joke now that yeah. like he he's saying it was always meant to be this way and it's the same with uh the guy who did birdemic where he basically made the same movie again because he's like oh this makes money i can do this birdemic too and, and yeah. it's like i think that like if somebody is really doing like and it's one thing too where a lot of people try to make cult movies and they fail and the reason being that you can't intentionally make a cult movie it's like either it It has a life its own it either has to be something that people gravitate towards because like oh we we're the only people who know about this movie it's kind of cool it's kind of counterculture to like be into this movie or if it's in the case of like a breen or a, a tommy wiseau movie it's because the person who was making it was so earnestly invested in making the movie that they thought was their, you know, magnum opus, and it just did not go that way. No, yeah. And there's just such a disconnect. But I think that that's what's really great about them, is they're truly making the movie that they wanted to make. And even though it didn't work out exactly the way that they had hoped, there's still some, like, real genuine charm to it. Like, for an example of something that isn't, like, Soup. Well, some people would say it's terrible. I really like the um, the Roger Corman uh, Fantastic Four, and especially the documentary. If you can that, get a copy of oh, it or well, find it, because sometimes they, it gets on YouTube. Yeah, it's, and it, it's been around forever. Like, yeah. the, the bootlegs are around, but the like, Roger, yeah, Ro- I'm sorry, Roger Corman Fantastic Four. It's hot. Yeah, it's phenomenal. And that, and then the documentary that came out, Doomed, where like the people involved with it were like, you know what? We only got a million dollars, but we're going to do the best Fantastic Four movie on a million dollars we can. And just how much everybody cared about it and how hard they all worked only for it to just go onto a shelf. And like, I think the thing that was like the most heartbreaking was like the cast talking about like that they were going to Comic Cons on their own dime to promote the movie to find out that, oh, this was never going to get released. Like, well, then why were you letting me pay my own money to go to San Diego to talk about your movie? It's like. I think that there's something to be said for people who made exactly what they wanted to do with, you know, whatever limitations or whatever they could. But one thing that I cannot stomach is people who are like, I'm going to make something terrible on purpose and people will love it because people love bad things. It's like, no, people love earnest things and people love interesting stories and people love like quirky things. They do not love movies where people are intentionally hamming it up because they think that they're going to make another route and then people are intentionally hanging yeah yeah, they don't want people to think that it's going to be another room you know you can't make the room on purpose and be successful right i think there's a a balance play of i think if it looks bad you probably get a a nice reception but that's not what you're yeah the you're the motivation should be you want to make a good movie no matter what. And I think yeah. that's Roger Corman's been doing for a million years. He wants to make a good movie. He just, it's cheaper to do it this way. Let's do it this way. <laughs> he and always know, goes to the cheaper way. Yeah. And as somebody who does indie film, like, I mean, yeah. you understand that. It's like, yeah, we're, we're doing it this way because that's what we can afford. Like yeah. I'm building this in my garage instead of an actual soundstage because I don't have to pay for my garage. You know, it's like, I, I totally get, the model of the Corman films, but it's like at the same time, like, you know, 
he he was still trying to put art into it. He was still trying to like yes, you know, yeah. like make it the best thing it could because I think he still understood that like people aren't going to just pay to see like because I mean like you got to think of like what was coming out around the same time like I mean nobody was really making sci-fi movies other than like other people in the same vein as Corman, but it was like studios trying to make like you know rock and roll pictures and like oh kids like music. Don't oh yeah, they? when they discovered that teenagers as a market, they yeah, know. it was like oh the teenage market. Let's um okay they like they like music let's just put like like <laughs> rock around the clock and like let's get eddie cochran and like have them appear briefly in this movie with no plot yeah because they'll go see they'll just go eddie see cochran him. you know yeah. like yeah. it doesn't make any sense but you know again that's that's somebody trying to use their marketing brain to make a movie yeah you you market after the movie's done guys so what's the last great movie that you recently saw oof um i have such a empty head for like the recent things that i've seen um like because the first thing i'm like the wraith (laughs) (laughs) well that's recently you watched i did yeah like and i i love letterboxd for this exact reason is because i can put down all the movies i've ever seen into it and i don't have to remember what movies i've seen anymore because this app just remembers them for me which really is a sad commentary on i used to chronicle (laughs) on a notebook all the movies i saw I used to do that by myself. And I, sometimes I still do it on my phone because I'll probably give it a end of the year. But I still chronicle all the movies I've seen. And it, I, give, I lost a notebook. <laughs> yeah, see, that's, yeah. that's why I want it digital. And I mean, now that, I'm, now that I'm talking through it, it's like, yeah, I guess the last great or big important movie I saw was um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But I didn't really like it. So I don't really want to talk about it. Right. It's like because I feel like with Quentin Tarantino, it's kind of the people who love him love him. Yeah, he's and, got a huge core fan base. Yep. No matter what he does, they're gonna like it. Exactly. And I, you know, I at one point counted myself in that fan base, but I never went to see Hateful Eight. And after, and when I went to see this one, I was just kind of like, oh, okay, so we're still doing this, okay. <laughs> and I, I still love Inglorious Bastards. I still love. Um, let's see. Uh, I mean, he didn't direct True Romance, but I think that's he, still writ, his, he wrote it. Still his best movie, but, yeah. Because I feel like it, well, Christian Slater <laughs> is Tarantino. Yeah, yeah. He wrote himself in the Tarantino wrote that character. Yeah, yeah. So it's like there's still movies of his that I, I can go back and watch, but it's kind of I just there was a lot that I to unpack with uh, Once Upon a Time that I was kind of like there, there, I just don't want to I don't want to deal with this anymore. <laughs> so. Yeah. I like that nice approach, especially for a filmmaker, that you're not just limited. Even if it, if it's regarded as a bad film, I'm still going to watch it. And I think I went to film school too, and then my instructor goes, watch everything. Mm-hmm. You'll learn something from a bad movie. you learn what not to do. Sometimes you learn something from good movies, um, but you learn more from bad movies. Well, and the thing too is, I, I mean, I don't want to get like philosophical on it, but good and bad are so like, you know, up to the interpret, like your own interpretation where it's like, yes. I I take a lot of enjoyment from bad movies and I don't consider them bad a lot of the time. Um, and that's, there's somebody, I, I can't remember who, but they, they rank their movies instead of like one to 10, they go like negative five to five, where it's like the worst thing a movie can be is zero because it's boring. It's mediocre and boring. Yes. Like, as I, I'm a really big fan of everything is terrible. And the reason 
is because they're just like, you know, they dig into old um, VHS tapes and like try and like find the humor and just like the, the ridiculous things that we committed to tape for some reason. And one of the things that they're known for is that they collect Jerry Maguire VHS tapes to build a pyramid in the desert as a temple to mediocrity. And the reason they chose Jerry Maguire <laughs> is it was produced at the height of VHS when like even the like it was a mass market movie. Many people saw it. Most people were kind of indifferent to it, but yeah. still we made over like 5 million, you know, we manufactured 5 million pieces of plastic and vinyl to, for this movie that most people don't really have a strong opinion about. It's yeah. a monument to mediocrity. <laughs> and so coming back to the rating, it's like a negative five is like, I totally enjoyed this ironically. And a five is this is a masterpiece of cinema. And both of those are perfectly valid, depending on what you're going for. And so, like, yeah, I I just, I don't think that there's such a thing as a bad movie unless it's boring. I think that's the worst, Andy Warhol regarded that's Mm -hmm. the worst insult you can give me was you are bored. And because, you know, if you had a response, I hate that, good. You had a reaction. You had a reaction. Yeah. And sometimes a negative reaction is more healthier because... You know, it gets out there more. People like to talk about, you know. Well, it's like you got to think that there's there's certain um, there's certain video games that were really notorious that came out like the and then there's the the in Britain there was the naughties where it was like they they basically sold themselves on the fact that they were banned and that they they that they it riled up certain groups and it's like they basically used the fact that people hated them as a marketing tactic and it's like that's perfectly valid if somebody is going to give you that much time to like complain about like what you're doing is such a harm to society well that's a great thing to put on a poster if you ask me yeah it's like this film is a harm to society, <laughs> especially if the name you put under it is something that somebody's like, "Oh, I hate yeah. that guy. This must be good." Yeah. So it's like, yeah, I. Well, last house on the left had a great. It's only a movie. Yeah, yeah. It's so terrifying. You have to tell yourself it's only a movie, and it's so big. It went big <laughs> just because of the psychology of the marketing. It's remember when you go see it's only a movie. <laughs> well, Matt, thanks for coming. To the podcast, man. Glad to be here. It was great. I love talking about movies. Anybody does like to talk about. Um, before we go, why don't you give a little bit to, from our listeners about um, the other movie you're working on and all the other important stuff. Uh, just a recap. Sure. Right now, I'm finishing up Motorway Macabre, a live action stop motion hybrid short film. Yeah. And that's, uh, I'll hope, I'm not going to put a date on it because that is a immediate curse to know that it's not coming out on that date. But we we want it to be in front of you imminently. It's all it's always um, it's an immediate curse, almost like saying you're making plans after going and seeing a baseball game. Oh yeah, do not ever make plans after a baseball It'll game. Go Fifteen innings. I will go to oh it's, I'll see you after the baseball game. Oh, it goes extra innings. Yeah, <laughs> oh, sorry. Go. Oh, absolutely. Uh, no, no worries. Um, uh, State of Affairs is uh, currently in pre-production. We're pulling it together to start a crowdfunding campaign sometime in the near future. If you want to follow that and learn a little bit more about the film and the people behind it, you can go to at State of Affairs underscore film on Instagram or just a State of Affairs the movie on Facebook. I don't know if you even know this. I was watching a documentary about James Dean. Mm. And the last thing he did in his house would made made a stop 
motion action short film. That's right, he did. I think if you've seen it, I think Dennis Hopper's estate owns the the rights to it. Mm. So I think that's if, too bad. I don't know. It's too bad. I don't know who was in charge of Dennis Hopper's estate because I, I think if you watch the same documentary, you've seen the stop action. It's actually wonderfully done. And I think the film rights as Dennis Hopper's hate owns it. But if you ever get a chance, James Dean definitely want to break into Dennis Hopper's like vault now. <laughs> if that exists, see that? It, yeah. it probably you know what it yeah. also has. It probably has the shoes that he bought his kid with the money from Super Mario Brothers. Right. I Dennis Hopper had a huge collection. It was like his own museum because he was a f- obsessive photographer as well. Oh wow! And so he he went in Apocalypse Now. He took mass. He, that's not a prop. He really did went around in the movie taking pictures that's of everything. So cool. <laughs> yes. So on that note, yes, if you ever get a chance, Den- James Dean did a animation stop animation film short film. Like I think it was like a minute long. I really want to see that now. Yeah. <laughs> if you if you look up, if I think can, yeah. if you look up his biography on, on Turner Classics, I think it shows it. Hmm. If you want to look for it. Okay. So. Sure. Matt, thanks again. Absolutely. And it's not over till the guest says it's over. So that means we can keep talking about movies, right? <laughs> yes. As long as there's not an, uh, over in the title, yeah. Ah, <laughs> uh, all right, all right. It's over. <laughs>